Morning, folks. My name is Phil. I'm the assistant pastor at Moreland Road Church, and it's my privilege to be bringing this part of God's word to us this morning. So let me pray as we begin. Heavenly Father, we pray, please would you give us ears to hear what your son has to tell us, to teach us this morning. And please, Father, would you give us hearts to understand and to believe. Please help us now. We pray that you would graciously take away distractions and teach us in Jesus' name. Amen. In the last year, two questions have probably been on our minds a lot more than they used to be. The first one is our mortality, not least as the COVID death rates seem to be rising at alarming, an alarming rate at the moment. So can we face death, which we know must come sooner or later, with any solid hope? And the second question is our relationship with the state, as government has repeatedly imposed restrictions upon our lives of a level that I doubt many of us ever expected to see. How much does the government actually have the right to interfere with our lives and tell us what to do? Another question is perhaps even more important. Who can be trusted to give me the answers? Who has the authority to do so? Now our passage in Mark 12 shows us that Jesus is the one person who can answer those questions. His teaching is utterly trustworthy even when it demands difficult things of us. And he is worth listening to because he alone offers us a solid hope in the face of death. So firstly, how does Mark show us that Jesus is the one to listen to, the one who answers our questions and demands our attention? Well, he shows us throughout the turbulent drama that plays out in chapters 11 to 12. In these chapters, Jesus comes to the temple in a kingly manner. He asserts his authority over the temple by driving out the money changers and the livestock sellers. And then returning to the temple, he debates all of the various Jewish sects who competed for the loyalties of the people release the main ones. He exposes their hypocrisy, he confounds their teaching, and he makes clear who he is and isn't impressed by. And in all of this, he shows us that he is the true teacher of God's people, not the elders, not the Pharisees, or the Herodians, or the Sadducees, or the scribes. Jesus alone gives us the true interpretation of God's word in the Old Testament. And he alone gives us the fullness of God's will and his purposes now. And he alone demonstrates that he has the God-given authority to command us. In chapters 11 to 12, Jesus has the final word and no one is able to contradict it. 
Jesus's identity and his authority as the true teacher of God's people is even more striking if we have certain Old Testament passages in mind. Now, we don't actually have much time to really tease out the links in detail now, but I just want to mention three to, to go away and look up afterwards. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 14 to 22. Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 to 5. And Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. Now, with, with his wisdom, with his insight, Jesus shows himself to be the ultimate prophet like Moses, who is promised in Deuteronomy chapter 18. He is the one who speaks the very words of God to us. And God will hold us accountable for how we listen. He's also the truer, better servant of the Lord who fulfills Isaiah 42, verses 1 to 5. He is the one in whose, te in whose teaching or Torah the islands will put their hope. And that is, his teaching brings hope for the furthest flung nations on earth. And finally, Jesus is God, the Lord, come to his temple as promised in Malachi 3. He has come as a refining fire to expose and purge out the unrighteous and the wicked from among the people. We see him beginning to do that in these chapters. So before we, think, um, before we think about the specific matters that are discussed in uh, chapter 12 in verses 13 to 27, it's really important for us to see this fundamental point. Jesus is the true teacher for anyone, Jew or Gentile, who wants to know God. He is the one we must listen to, and God will hold us accountable if we ignore him. All the more because Jesus is himself God. And at a time when Christians seem to disagree on so many things, maybe we need to ask ourselves, who are we listening to? Our favourite platform preacher? Perhaps the Pope or someone claiming to be a modern day apostle or prophet? Or maybe the voices of secular society which seem to shout with more immediacy and force? Or are we listening to Jesus in and through his word, the Bible? He is our only true teacher. So with that in mind, what does Jesus teach on these two big challenging questions of mortality and our relationship with the state in verses 13 to 27? Well, firstly, he challenges our assumptions and he calls us to obey both the state and God in ways that we might find very uncomfortable at times. But secondly, it's worth sticking with him through the hard stuff because the hope he offers in the face of death outweighs any discomfort we might feel in this life. So firstly, Jesus' teaching challenges us. Now the Pharisees and the Herodians were two sects competing for the loyalties of the Jewish people. And like many in the world today, their hatred for Jesus 
united them despite having massive disagreements with each other. And when they come to Jesus in verse 13, they were hoping to trap him with their question. If Jesus said that they should pay taxes to Caesar, then he'd look like a traitor to the Jewish nations and a stooge of the Roman authorities who were oppressing the Jews. The Pharisees could then discredit Jesus in the eyes of the adoring crowd. But if Jesus said they should refuse to pay the tax, it would look like sedition. The Herodians could then dob Jesus into the Roman governor as a troublemaker, as someone who was undermining Roman rule, and he'd be arrested. But Jesus didn't give the answer they expected. In fact, he demonstrates far more in this answer than we've got time to go into now. But this is key. The Pharisees and the Herodians were asking the wrong question. The Pharisees were assuming that obedience to Caesar must be a betrayal of their higher calling to obey God. You couldn't obey God and Caesar. But the Herodians supposed that loyalty to Caesar, who propped up their half-Jewish puppet kings, trumped obedience to God in certain matters of the Jewish law. Both parties either believed or acted as if you can't be obedient to both God and Caesar simultaneously. But Jesus shows they are wrong. Firstly, when when he calls for a denarius, the Roman coin that was used to pay the tax, he makes them show that they have those coins in their pockets. They all implicitly submit to Caesar's rule because they accept his currency and the, the ordered system of administration that goes with it. So having already accepted Caesar's rule, at least in part, They should jolly well give him his due. The currency is his. So when he demands part of it, as is his right, they should pay. However humiliating that may feel to the Pharisees as a reminder that the Jewish nation is not free. And we know from Paul's writings in Romans 13 and from Peter's writings in 1 Peter chapter 2, that Caesar, the ruling authority, does indeed have the right to demand taxation because God is the one who ultimately appoints all governing authorities to keep good order, to punish those who do wrong and commend those who do good. Governing authorities may constantly fall short of their divine calling as we know from constant experience and demonic powers may well stand behind them as many of the New Testament letters and the books of Daniel and Revelation suggest. But they are still ultimately put there by God. And in as much as they do keep good order, they are a blessing. So obedience to Caesar, generally speaking, is obedience to God. And we should give our governing authorities their due both in obedience to the law and in taxation so that they can carry out their work. But Jesus also makes a veiled criticism of Caesar. The denarius, the the Roman coin that Jesus asks for, 
showed a picture of the emperor's head on one side with the words Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. And on the other side, it said Pontifex Maximus, which meant high priest. So in the Roman pagan religion of that time, the emperor was seen as a semi-divine figure. He was also seen as high priest of the Roman state religion. So he claimed for himself and his predecessors, especially Caesar Augustus, a level of obedience, of loyalty, and even worship that rightly belonged to God alone. And so in saying, give to God what is God's, Jesus was challenging Caesar's claims. God's people must not join in with the false worship of the peoples we live among, including what we see in our own culture, this worship of self as the ultimate authority in our lives. Nor can we give obedience to the government in matters that contradict God's revealed will in scripture. Now, this was a challenging teaching in Jesus's time. In calling the Pharisees to give back to Caesar what is Caesar's by paying the poll tax, Jesus was commanding something they found deeply distasteful and humiliating. It went against their principles. And in commanding the Herodians to give back to God what was God's, Jesus was calling them to stop cozying up to the Roman establishment and their puppet kings. They would have found this deeply uncomfortable because it would mean surrendering some of their power and privilege in society. They would in some ways become enemies of the state. So obeying Jesus's teaching will also require us to do things we find uncomfortable, distasteful, even nonsensical. I could pick all sorts of examples like the Bible's teaching on sex and gender or maintaining Jesus's claim to be the only way to eternal life. We must give to God the obedience and loyalty that are rightly his by upholding biblical teaching on these matters. And so some of us may need to be willing to lose our jobs or to face prison in future, especially if the laws on hate speech are expanded and wrongly applied to these matters. But maybe the most obvious application at the moment in our current situation is submission to the lockdown rules. We may deeply resent the restrictions placed on our lives. We may find them enormously hard to bear with. I know many are. We may be contemplating disobeying in small or big ways. Or even going ahead with it. But Jesus' teaching here forces us to ask ourselves a serious question. Will we submit to the government which God has placed over us and which Jesus commands us to obey, at least up to a point. Because the apostles set the bar very high on where that point of disobeying is. And none of us is a special case. Similar to what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10 in verses 13 to 14, 
I don't think any temptation has overtaken us in lockdown except what is common to mankind. And Jesus will always provide a way out of temptation so we can endure it. So will we obey Jesus's teaching even when it is deeply uncomfortable? And will we cry out to God daily for help to see the way out and for that to come soon so that we can bear up in these trials? This is really hard stuff for us to accept. I know that. But we have to remember that Jesus's right to command us comes from who he is as the true teacher and greatest prophet of God's people who is, in fact, God himself. And we should also remember that he's not teaching us to do anything that he hasn't already done himself. It's only a few days after this scene in Mark 12 that Jesus submits to the thoroughly unjust treatment of the governing authorities and to the will of his heavenly father by going to the cross. Jesus suffers the deepest discomfort of all, the hellish torment and rejection that our sins deserve. So will we submit to the one who submitted out of deepest love for us? Finally, our last big point. Jesus' teaching is worth obeying because the hope he offers in the face of death outweighs any discomfort we might endure in this life. So in Mark 12, in verses 18 to 27, the Sadducees come with another trick question, a scenario designed to make any belief in, the, in a resurrection of the dead look ridiculous. The Sadducees only accepted the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses. They, they thought only those were fully authoritative and inspired. So they rejected ideas like resurrection of the dead and everlasting life because they didn't see those things explicitly stated in the first five books. They failed to draw out the good and necessary consequences that were implied in those explicit statements. Now, Jesus doesn't pull apart all their mistakes here, but he makes two devastating points. Firstly, Jesus shows that they are limiting God. They assumed resurrection couldn't happen because they just couldn't imagine how a life after death would be any different to the present world. And therefore, they couldn't imagine how marriage would work there. Now, this sounds like a stupid mistake to make, a simple lack of imagination. But not really. We can so easily limit God's plans by our lack of imagination. For example, do we assume that life with Jesus in the new creation will be dull because we can't imagine something better and different to the present creation? Do we assume it will be tedious because we can't imagine how one person, even someone as good as Jesus, will satisfy us and delight us for all eternity? Do we make marriage ultimate now 
as the thing that we must have in order to be truly fulfilled and satisfied. Because we can't imagine that earthly marriage might simply be a temporary thing, a shadow of something greater. The everlasting marriage between Jesus and his church. Secondly, Jesus shows us that they, the Sadducees, are failing to read scripture carefully. He holds them accountable for failing to draw out the good and necessary consequences of God's word. They are in error because they only accept beliefs that can be proved by an explicit proof text. And we must beware of doing the same and of just having a shallow theology. If God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, rather than I was, that at least ought to make us sit up and think. Now, I know it's not obvious. Instinctively, I'd read this as meaning that Yahweh continues to be the same God that he was for Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in their times, even though they've died, because God doesn't change. But Jesus... Israel's true teacher and ours clearly thinks that more is implied. And of course, in the wider context of Genesis and Exodus, it is. Weren't Adam and Eve supposed to eat from the tree of life in Eden and live forever with God? Doesn't death come as a necessary punishment for disobedience rather than God's preferred end for humanity? Doesn't God make a series of promises and covenants from Genesis 3 onwards to suggest that he will redeem and rescue humanity from its cursed state? Starting with Abraham in Genesis 12. And what kind of rescue would that be if he saved Abraham and co from a few Gentile kings and the old famine here and there, but failed to save them from the greater enemy of death? How could God himself be Abraham's very great reward in Genesis 15 verse 1 if Abraham was soon to be cut off from God forever by death? I could go on listing questions, examples. Now, God's faithfulness to his covenants is very much in view in Exodus chapters 2 to 4, which is where Jesus gets his quote from. This is where God declares that he will bring about the long promised rescue of his people from Egypt. But God's covenant faithfulness can't amount to much if it is for this life only. In fact, it would have meant very little at all to all the generations of Israelites who died in slavery and in misery in Egypt. As Jesus insists, this verse must mean that God continues to be the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob because they are not dead to him. And that's not just because God is outside of time, but because Abraham, Isaac and Jacob will rise again at the resurrection. More than that, scripture gives us reason to believe that their souls are cons uh, consciously enjoying God's presence now. Isn't Jesus's teaching here profoundly good news? To think that we have a hope of resurrection that completely blows this sorry life, this broken world and these decaying bodies out of the water. 
when we're married at its best will be nothing compared to the intimacy that we will enjoy with God. Jesus' teaching offers a better hope than any competing voice. Take the hope of secular society, which is remarkably like that of the Sadducees in at least one way. So many of the people around us have no serious or certain hope beyond death. At best, they have sentimental caricatures of heaven that are a hangover from Christendom. Or else they have the uncertain hope of legalistic religions, where you might get into heaven, but only if you try hard enough. So many people have hope for this life only. And if that's you, you may feel compelled to grasp at any passing joy or pleasure that you can get your hands on now, because it might be the only chance you get. That phrase YOLO, you only live once, becomes justification for all kinds of desperate and often damaging behavior because the future is ultimately filled with fear, fear of death and fear of missing out. But that's not the case for Christians. We have the sure hope of a resurrection which must happen because of who God is. He must restore Eden, so to speak, in the new creation. He must bless his chosen people forever and be their God forever because his covenant faithfulness demands it. And he is the unchanging God who always keeps his promises. So for those who follow Jesus, we will be saved and raised by God entirely upon the basis of his grace, not anything we've earned, because he has promised and sworn by himself to do these things. So to finish, Jesus, our true teacher, often calls us to do hard and uncomfortable things. We should refuse to give the government the obedience that is due to God alone. But we should otherwise obey the government, even if we really dislike it now. But you know what? It's worth it. Because Jesus offers the best hope we could possibly have. One that will make the troubles and afflictions of this life seem like a drop in the ocean. That's because the resurrection of all who trust him is real and sure. And it will be more wonderful than anything we can imagine in this world. So if you are a follower of Jesus, you don't only live once. So will we patiently live for tomorrow by obeying him today? Amen. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, you make your authority so clear for those who have eyes to see it. For any who are unconvinced or unsure, 
please would you grant them insight and clarity. And Lord, for all of us, who, as, we, as we struggle to obey your teaching, as we struggle to keep our eyes on the better hope, the sure hope that you give us beyond death. In these dark times, Lord, help us. Help us to obey. Help us to be more convinced and to be more excited about the resurrection life to come. Lord, so that we would count the things of this life as loss for the sake of having your eternal life, your new creation, you, yourself, forever. We ask these things for your glory. Amen.